The title of our current series is Voices of Resistance and Hope. And we're looking into 12, the, the messages of 12 different voices from the Old Testament, 12 different prophets proclaiming messages from God that speak to their contemporaries of their day, but that also speak to us today and always. And in our time today, we're going to look at the message of the book of Amos. And right here at the beginning, I will say that Amos, it's not a really, really short book. It's not a really, really long one, but it's not a really, really short one. And I say that because I know we're not going to be able to get into everything that Amos talks about in its nine chapters or so. And so I would encourage you later this week, later today, later in the week to, to go back into the book of Amos, to dig a little bit deeper, to learn more about what it is that God is saying to his people through the prophet Amos, just because we're not going to be able to cover everything, of course. Uh, and in a book like this also, it's sometimes hard to pick out just one key passage that represents the entirety of the book. That's sometimes difficult with many of the books of the Bible. And so today we're going to begin our time together looking at two different passages. And they are listed in your notes, which can be found um, through the QR code, through the Nova website, through the Nova app. Uh, but they are Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Uh, those are the, the first two key passages for today, and I will read those for us. So uh, beginning with Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. And then chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. This is God's word through the prophet Amos for us today. And we're going to dip into the message of Amos soon in just a few moments. But first, a little bit about who is Amos? Who is this person? We don't actually know a lot about him. Uh, nobody named Amos seems to be mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. And so we only have the book of Amos itself to give us some information about him. And there's a lot in his message, but not a lot of detail about him in particular. But it does tell us in chapter 1 that he was from a region called Tekoa in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the time frame here, if you remember, is, is uh, the nation of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. So he is from the southern kingdom. And the village Tekoa was about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. That's the village. But the area itself extended about 20 miles to the east, all the way to the shores of the Dead Sea. So the area is kind of a vast desert area. I came across one interesting description of this region called Tekoa in one of the commentaries that's out there. I'm sure there's more, but this one I thought was really interesting and I wanted to read it. When you see those miles of chaos, you begin to understand the influence of the desert on Jewish imagination and literature. It gave the ancient natives of Judea, as it gives the visitor of today, the sense of living next door to doom. The sense of how narrow is the border between life and death. This was a bleak area of the wilderness, a wasteland in the desert. 
maybe this is part of the reason Amos is, is known to a lot of people as the prophet of doom <laughs> because of where he lived and worked. Uh, Amos himself is not described, does not describe himself as a prophet, actually, but as a shepherd and a farmer of sycamore figs, it says in chapter 7. It's interesting to note, though, that the word used here in the book to describe him as a shepherd, it's not the normal word that's used to describe a regular shepherd. It was really more the word used to describe somebody who was in the sheep business, somebody who had flocks and flocks of sheep. We're also told he had this additional business, caring for sycamore fig trees. And those most likely had to grow somewhere near water, obviously, probably closer to the Dead Sea. And this is interesting because it reveals that Amos was a businessman and that his business covered this vast area from the village all the way across the desert towards the Dead Sea. And so he's this businessman, even if a large part of his business was just an absolute wasteland across the desert. But this was Amos. That's who he is, who he was. That's about all we're told about him. And this is the man that was called by God as a prophet to deliver a message to the people of God. But God sends him, even though he's from the southern kingdom, God sends him to the northern kingdom to deliver this message that we know as the book of Amos. Now, this all happened under the reign of King Jeroboam II, right around 760 to 750 BC is what most people think. So, 8th century before Christ. And in this time, under the reign of Jeroboam II, Israel was experiencing a new prosperity and an economic boom and growth like they had never seen before. And the people of Israel were sure that they had entered this era of God's blessing because things were going so well. Yet Amos hands out what I've called judgment all around. <laughs> That's the title of this message, judgment all around from Amos. And around it goes really, it's kind of in this spiraling pattern and there are lessons that we can learn here from the book of Amos. The book opens not with judgment on Israel, but with judgment on all of her neighbors in the first uh, two chapters, all of the neighboring countries, kind of again in this spiraling pattern. And because of that, his prophecy seemingly starts out well to the people that hear it, because God's initial targets are all the pagan neighbors, right? Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon. Moab. These are all the neighboring countries which are enemies of Israel. And we can learn here then, first, that God holds the nations accountable for their sins. God holds the nations accountable for their sins, even though they're not the people of God who have the law. And Amos's announcement of doom, it begins with kind of this formula phrase, maybe you know it or have heard of it. Because each time he writes, for three sins, even for four, I will not relent. The first one is in chapter 3 of verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 3. Or verse 3 of chapter 1. You're getting my words mixed up there. <laughs> he says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. And the Lord is keeping a careful accounting of the sins of these nations, and they are many. And this pattern, it repeats for each of these judgments that Amos gives of God upon the nations. And I'm sure the people of God are thinking, yeah, get them, <laughs> right? Damascus, our enemies, get them. 
They're evil. They're awful. Gaza, Tyre, Edom, get them, Lord. They're awful. They're bad. They're our enemies, right? For three sins of each one of these nations, even for four, I will not relent. But then this spiraling pattern of God's judgment begins to get a little closer to home. And in chapter 2, we learn that God also holds not just the nations accountable. He also holds his own chosen people accountable for their sins. And he says the same thing. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent. Judah, where Solomon's great temple stood. Judah faces a devouring fire, it says, for rejecting some of God's laws. And we've already seen judgment pronounced on the six other nations, and now Judah. Six nations and now Judah. But if the southern kingdom stands condemned, what hope does the northern kingdom have? And indeed, the spiral of judgment circles all the way back around. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. Amos 2, verse 5, and a bunch of the following verses. And quite frankly, for the remaining 11 verses of chapter 2, and for the remaining chapters of the book we know as Amos, Amos blasts Israel, God's chosen people. And as God's chosen people at this time, they were looking forward to a day of the Lord, which would really be a time when they were delivered from all of their enemies. The Lord says that they now bear a special responsibility in chapter 3, verse 2. And therefore, the day of the Lord for them, it's not going to be a day of deliverance, but a day of judgment. That's seen in that first of our two key passages that we read. Chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. So yes, God holds His chosen people accountable for their sins. That's the message of Amos. And the book itself can really be divided into four main sections. In a very basic outline, which I included in your notes, it reveals that those four sections include eight judgments, three sermons, five visions, and it ends with three promises. We've already briefly covered the first part, the eight judgments, the judgments on the six surrounding nations, and it spirals back around to judgments on Judah and on Israel themselves. And there's a lot to be found throughout the rest of the book, though. These sections, they're often referred to as the oracles of Amos. And these oracles of Amos, they reveal how Israel was experiencing this economic prosperity that I already mentioned. And I've listed, gosh, a number of things here, not in your notes, but commerce was booming, we learn in chapter 8. Trade was practiced on an international scale in chapter 3. Profits were increasing for businesses. Building activity flourished also in chapters 8 and chapter 3. Houses were becoming more numerous than ever before, and they were elaborately furnished. Viniculture and cattle raising also became geared to more demanding customers, we learn in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. And, and this is because they now had to accommodate this growing thirst for pleasure. People wanted more for themselves. We read about that in chapter 4 and also in chapter 6. The cults participated in this economic boom as well. In chapters 4 and 5, some of that is detailed. 
new music was composed and sexual immorality increased. And all this was going on and they themselves thought we're at the height of this economic boom. But on the flip side of all this development was social upheaval. The rich became richer, the poor became poorer. Ancient Israelite land rights were superseded by Canaanite practices, which actually included slavery for debt. It's mentioned in chapter 2 and in chapter 8. Those practices also included exploiting the underprivileged. In chapter 2, in chapter 4, in chapter 8, people's rights were being violated through intimidation of witnesses and bribery of judges in the court systems. Things were not going well socially. And I'm sure I haven't even covered it all. There's a lot more in there. But under the shadow of this grand world of Jeroboam II, luxury boomed, but injustice was booming also, everywhere. And Amos' message was to call his people, God's people, to a proper relationship with God that would also result in a proper relationship with other people and hopefully also result in proper forms of worship, which were being tweaked. And he warned that a failure to respond would bring the judgment and the wrath of God. And more than almost any other book of Scripture, Amos holds God's people accountable for their mistreatment of other people. The nation had become drunk on its own success, on its own economics. It was, people were intent on strengthening themselves and making themselves better and richer. And they'd lost their concept of caring for one another. And Amos rebuked them. He saw in that lifestyle evidence that Israel was forgetting God. Amos' message should help simplify the choices in our own lives. God has called us as Christians not only to be in a right relationship with Him, but also to be in right relationships with other people. And there's some powerful observations here, I think. The first one is that observing proper forms of worship is not enough for a right relationship with God. Because any religion that does not result in the right treatment of other people is worthless. Amos issues a call for practical righteousness as a foundation for the worship of God's people. Another observation, for them at least, being a part of God's people does not guarantee exemption from judgment. The people of Israel, they had ignored the basic idea that privilege, as God's people, privilege carries with it responsibility. They had assumed rightly that the day of the Lord would bring judgment on the nations and the enemies of God. But they had assumed wrongly that it wouldn't bring judgment on them. Their own actions of oppression and dishonesty had shifted them into the camp of enemies of God. This is represented in our second passage. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Amos 8, verses 11 and 12. Apparently a time was coming for them when they're going to seek after God and realize they can't find Him. God's going to withdraw. 
in a nutshell, if I had to say it that way, the basic theme of Amos is this coming judgment because of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of his own covenant people. Remember, this was a message to God's covenant people, not just to the nations. God is gracious and patient for sure, absolutely and always, but his justice and his righteousness will not allow sin to go unpunished indefinitely. And Israel's sins at this time in the history of God's people, they were piled high. God's people repeatedly broke all these different aspects of their covenant relationship with him. But God's mercy and love is evident in his offer for deliverance if, if the people would turn back to him. You see, God graciously sent a prophet, Amos, to warn his people about what was coming if they refused to listen. But at that time, they refused. And so hope was not going to come for them, at least not in their time. And Amos' message shows an insistence on moral obedience. That's a big part of it. Or what can be called covenant justice. The rich and the politically strong, they had forsaken their commitment to justice and the law in favor of their own power, in favor of their own luxury and building themselves up. And they were using God to try to do so. They were using God to try to affirm the status quo, I guess. And how easy it can be to claim God's approval for our questionable choices. How easy it can be to use the ritual and the emotion of worship and then just think that God is pleased because we've emoted and we've had this ritual. But worship needs to extend to the scales of business, to the quality of products, to the fair treatment of others. Of others. And if worship doesn't extend to those areas of life, then it's just empty rituals. Here in Amos, justice is tied specifically to the expectations of the people of God. It's not just bad that they're acting the way they are, but they're acting that way, and they're the people of God. They're the ones who are supposed to be different, set apart by this covenant with the one true God. And for this, the message of a nobody farmer and shepherd from an unknown town in a southern wasteland calls them on the carpet. But the message of Amos doesn't just end there with a message of doom. There is hope. Remember, our series title is Voices of Resistance and Hope. But the hope found in the message of Amos, it's not tied to the future of their kingdom, the northern kingdom. In fact, their kingdom was actually pretty doomed. <laughs> but the hope found in the message of Amos, it's tied to the covenant of God, to the future of the Davidic throne. The throne of David is part of this larger story, one that involves the covenant of God with his people throughout Scripture. And it's within this idea of covenant that we see this other theme in the book of Amos. There's one more key passage in the book, the last five verses. Amos 9, verses 11 through 15. And I'll read them here. In that day... I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be. 
so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Amos 9, 11-15. And this is also God's word for us today. And here we see a glimpse of this larger story of the Bible, which is really this larger, grand, overarching story about one thing, God's covenant relationship with those He calls His people. And this culminates in the salvation found in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we find the fulfillment of this covenant justice. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham who trusted His Father even to the point of death, becoming a blessing to the nations. Jesus is the one who perfectly kept and fulfilled the law of God. Jesus is the royal son of David who brought to fulfillment God's kingdom and who now sits at God's right hand, reigning as king. Think about it. Jesus perfectly succeeded where humanity failed. And this makes him the guarantor and the mediator of the new and better covenant that God's word talks about. For the nation of Israel at the time of Amos, salvation worked a little differently than it does now. You see, they were living before the Messiah, Jesus had come. And then he comes as the final sacrifice for sin, making that way to be reconciled to God. But now, when you come into a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you have a secured spot in heaven. This is clear in Scripture. Scripture says that that can never perish, spoil, or fade in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And I want you to understand very clearly that I am not saying that your actions or your works determine your salvation. They don't. But now, people from every tribe and nation and tongue who are joined together by faith in Jesus are a part of God's covenant family and experience the blessings of the new covenant. And in this new covenant, we get total and complete forgiveness of sins, cleansing from shame. We get new hearts. We get the indwelling Holy Spirit, causing us to love God's laws and walk in His ways. We can actually do justice and righteousness and be a light to the nations. That's an amazing thing. We can now walk in freedom and light rather than sin and darkness. We have bold access to God. We stand under His grace rather than His judgment. And it's all possible because of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of this amazing covenant between God and His people. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then how you live your life matters. And not just publicly or at church on Sundays, but how we live our lives each and every day, throughout each and every week, throughout each and every month, 
throughout each and every year matters. How we see and treat other people matters. God's word tells us that people will know we are Christians by our love in John 13. I can think about our love for him, our love for each other, our love for others. As children of God, we are God's ambassadors to this world. We're told that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Ambassadors of a new covenant. And what do ambassadors do? Ambassadors represent. And that's what we do as Christians. And as you move forward in your faith journey today and each day, may you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. May you follow God's example and walk in the way of love. And may you let your light, your light excuse me, shine before others. In a nutshell, that's the message of Amos in the larger story of Scripture that brings us always to Jesus. Amen.